Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington, and joining me from New York is co-host Natalie Rodriguez. How are you today, Natalie? Hey, Jimmy. I'm pretty good. So I'm just here trying to to fit in my new favorite vocabulary word, precatory, (laughs) into into daily conversation, uh, which uh, I learned from this week's ACA arguments, which I know we'll be talking about. Uh, Justice Breyer, yeah, he's always teaching us new vocabulary. And (laughs) I think I heard the word precatory more times in that argument than I think maybe my entire life. I don't know if I'd ever even heard it before. I don't think I had either. So I was like, it it seems to relate to uh, expressing a wish or intention, you know, as in as in perhaps my hopes that the news cycle will calm down is precatory. (laughs) (laughs) Justice Breyer would be proud of that one. Thank you. Thank you. Just minor news update since last we recorded the term. Uh, There has been a presidential election and a declared winner. Um, On Saturday, Joe Biden was announced as the president-elect by uh, major media outlets, which has a number of implications for the Supreme Court. I should just say quickly, um, we've been covering the Supreme Court election case in recent weeks. Um, That case is actually still pending before the court. It's a petition from Republicans seeking to get late-arriving mail-in ballots thrown out. But as of Um, Thursday, it doesn't look like that case is really going to have an effect one way or the other because the number of those ballots is not big enough to put an actual dent in Joe Biden's margin in Pennsylvania. So I just wanted to give that quick update. But the election also has big implications for the Supreme Court because obviously the president gets to nominate justices to the Supreme Court. And I imagine that a Joe Biden nominee to the court is going to look a lot different from a Trump uh, nominee to the court. Yeah, Biden actually has has come out and said that, you know, he'd be open to nominating the first black female justice, uh, which is, I I think, something a lot of folks have hooked on to and and are watching. Of course, now you need a a retire. You need an opening, right, to 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 be able to nominate a justice. Um, And I, I think. We may have talked about this. Uh, I'm actually trying to remember if we talked about it on or off the air. But, you know, just where things stand now, it seems like court reform or a.k.a. court packing certainly seems to be off the table under, you know, the Biden administration. Off Um, the table is a pretty nice way of saying dead on arrival, which is (laughs) what it pretty much (laughs) looks like. Exactly. So 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 that then, you know, what what opening might happen well, eyes kind of fall on maybe Justice Breyer, who is 82 years old and, and might want to retire under a Democratic administration. Yeah, I could see Biden's uh, hope, his precatory hope that um, <laughs> that Breyer stepped down um, in the first couple of years uh, of Biden's administration will give him the opportunity to, you know, make that that campaign promise of appointing you know, the first black female justice of the Supreme Court, a reality. Obviously, that's going to depend a lot on, you know, who controls the Senate. That's coming down to a pair of runoff races in Georgia expected in uh, January. And that's going to um, determine, you know, whether Mitch McConnell still has control of the upper chamber in Congress or whether uh, Democrats can, you know, reach 50 seats. And plus, obviously, uh, Vice President-elect uh, Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote, so that would allow them to, you know, pass a nominee 
uh, on a 51 vote basis. But as you said, yeah, court reform not going anywhere. You've already had uh, a prominent Democratic senator. I think just today, Joe Manchin confirmed that he's not going to be the tie-breaking vote um, to you know pass any kind of court expansion legislation. And we already know that Biden's really not into that anyway. So um, I think people who were fearing an FDA, FDR-like court expansion uh, proposal um, can rest assured that that is pretty much uh, uh, pretty much <laughs> fallen by the wayside, I would say. Yeah, he always seemed very uncomfortable when the question was presented to him and, you know, never quite super comfortable with answering that, yeah, I'll be thinking about court reform or court packing. Right, and it also kind of makes his promise to, you know, gather a commission um, to a bipartisan commission to make like recommendations for how to change the court system. I think at that point, we're not going to see a whole lot of recommendations or at least one that Biden's going to respond to about court expansion. I think maybe you could see expansion of the lower courts because there's a, you know, kind of a, a growing bipartisan chorus um, for the need to, you know, add uh, judgeships to the lower federal district courts, which have just in recent years just become swamped. Um, with cases and just not enough um, judges to handle all of them. Um, I think it's been you know many, many years since the last time Congress actually authorized new permanent judgeships. So that could be something that you could see come out of the commission and maybe fall under the bucket of court reform, if not court packing or court expansion. Certainly something to keep an eye on. Uh, this week, though, I, I think all eyes were on the Tuesday Supreme Court oral arguments and what was largely known as the ACA case for, for this term. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a it's a big one. It's it's the latest, you know, existential threat to the Affordable Care Act to reach the Supreme Court after obviously early earlier decisions upholding um, President Barack Obama's signature health care law. Uh, this one's called California v. Texas. It was argued on Tuesday. And in it, um, Republicans backed by President Trump are asking the Supreme Court to essentially strike down the entirety of the law. But after the dust settled on Tuesday's telephonic oral arguments, it was pretty clear that they do not have the votes to do that. I mean, it looks like the ACA once again is going to survive a high court ruling on its constitutionality. So so let's back up a minute, though. Let's 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 take it from the first step because this is just as you said the latest challenge to the ACA what was uh the big topic here so in previous episodes on the show we've talked about the republican argument in this case and it centers around a change that congress made in 2017 to the individual mandate this is the uh, part of the ACA that tells um people that they need to buy health insurance um, or else they're going to have to pay a fine, a fee, a penalty. Um, now, that was the basis upon which the Supreme Court upheld the ACA, saying it's a valid use of Congress's taxing authority. Um, now, in 2017, Republicans in Congress, they eliminated, they zeroed out the penalty associated with failing to buy health insurance. So basically, they just removed the teeth from the individual mandate. Um, but left left the words but left the words in the statute the provision is still on the books so they say now that there is no tax penalty associated with failing to buy insurance then it's no longer the individual mandate that is is no longer a legitimate use of congress's taxing authority because it doesn't raise revenue 
And so they brought a challenge, uh, a group of Republican states led by Texas, brought a challenge in a federal district court um, and convinced a federal judge that indeed the individual mandate is now unconstitutional. And get this, that the rest of the you know thousand page healthcare law is now as a result unconstitutional because it's the individual mandate is essential to the to the performance to the execution if you will of the rest of the law so that comes up to the fifth circuit the fifth circuit says okay we agree with you on the individual mandate portion that is unconstitutional but speaking to the judge now who struck down the whole thing the fifth circuit said you're going to need to show your work a little bit more you're going to need to go and explain this why you don't think that the mandate can be to use a legal term severed from the rest of the law. So that brings us to the Supreme Court. Democrats want to, you know, resolve all the legal uncertainty over the Affordable Care Act. Republicans want the Supreme Court to strike down the Affordable Care Act, obviously being joined by the Trump administration in that request. And that gets us to Tuesday. And there was a, you know, a, a fairly lengthy hearing um, over uh, Zoom, if you will, because of obviously the pandemic has shuttered the courthouse doors. And it just, I got to say, once again, there's just pretty much no path forward, I guess, <laughs> to to borrow, like, to use some election phrasing. There's no path forward uh, for Donald Trump uh, convincing the Supreme Court to throw out the entire ACA. The votes just aren't there. Okay. So I think something that a lot of folks might actually not remember is that this was brought up to the Supreme Court by the Democrats, right? As you said, to clear up uncertainty. Well, there were two appeals. The Democrats appealed and then the, the Republicans cross-appealed. But you're right. The, the posture is the Fifth Circuit ruled this way in a way that kind of cast this legal jeopardy over the ACA. And then the Supreme Court agrees to revisit that decision. Okay. And so... So then the beginning of the, uh, of the argument, there's a whole lot of talk standing. Um, I, I found it very enthralling, you know, the talk of lawnmowers and mass <laughs> mandates and and other hypotheticals in this larger discussion about whether this toothless mandates, as as several kind of pointed out, uh, causes enough harm to create standing. Right. You know, to I, I was to actually allow Republicans to sue to challenge it in the first place. That's the the Democrats are saying that they have no actual injury, so they can't bring the suit in the first place. That's the threshold standing issue. Um, so, yeah, you're right. They did discuss that for uh, a pretty lengthy portion of the beginning of the argument. And then things started to heat up when Donald Verley, who's uh, from Munger Tolls, but actually had, uh, I think, argued on, on behalf of the ACA like something like eight years ago when this yeah, that, whole yeah. issue was first brought up. Uh, he took the virtual podium, right? Right. So things... The shoe quickly drops here. <laughs> so we're we're talking about standing. We're talking about lawnmower mandates, and or Brett Kavanaugh used an example of a mandate to uh, have homeowners fly the American flag outside of their house. Would that give rise to standing? So it's all very uh, good and well and interesting. And then Kavanaugh is questioning Verilli, and basically reveals that he's not going to do. Sorry, who was who was representing? I should say the House of Representatives. Here. Right. Right. So questioning the attorney for the House of Representatives, uh, Don Verrilli, Kavanaugh says this. I tend to agree with you. This is a very straightforward case for severability under our precedents, meaning that we would excise the mandate and leave the rest of the act in place, uh, reading our severability precedents. So that basically tells you that he does not agree with the Republicans' argument that the whole law should fall. Um, And that is crucial 
uh, because he is now the median justice on the court, meaning that his vote could be decisive. So with three um, liberal justices who were, were pretty much widely expected to uphold the ACA, obviously, as they've done in the past, um, Kavanaugh's vote brings it to four. So the liberals only just need one more vote to save the entirety of the Affordable Care Act. And just moments later, Chief Justice Roberts pretty much reveals that he's going to be that vote. Uh, General Hawkins, on the severance question, I I think it's hard for you to argue that Congress um, intended the entire act to fall if the mandate were struck down uh, when the same Congress that lowered the penalty to zero uh, did not even try to repeal the rest of the act. Uh, I think... Uh, frankly, that they wanted the court to do that, uh, but that's not our job. So is that the ball game? It looks like that's the ball game. I mean, I think the really the only remaining question is whether the Supreme Court um, votes to strike down the individual mandate, which, as we already know, has no penalty associated. So it would be largely a symbolic victory for Republicans in any event. Um, it looks like this case going to be kind of a dud for maybe some opponents of the Affordable Care Act who were hoping to see, um, you know, obviously the, the very expansive legislation finally come crashing down. But, you know, once again, Chief Justice Roberts, Kavanaugh, the liberal justices, and who knows, maybe another conservative justice on the court could potentially um, join a decision upholding the law. Yeah, I, I mean, like I, I, on this severability point, I I think the lineup doesn't feel hugely surprising, right? If you look at the last term with the CFPB case, which also heavily involved this point about severability. And there we saw Roberts and Kavanaugh join with liberal justices. We also saw Alito did. And now Alito didn't tip his hat as strongly, perhaps, as, as Roberts and Kavanaugh during the ACA arguments. But he did question how the mandate in its present form is basically essential to the operation of the act. You know, he's like, well, we've it's already like gone and the plane hasn't fallen down. He was using a plane analogy, you know, so, so what's the big deal, essentially? So, so you know, I, I, I'm going to be intrigued, I think, to see the lineup on this opinion. I'm also, I think, going to be intrigued to see if this is a complicated opinion, because there's also that standing issue, right? Right. And that is a big issue. And that could, in fact, have uh, pretty widespread repercussions when we when we're talking about constitutional challenges to major legislation. Um, you know, Roberts brings that up in his um, questioning uh, during the oral argument, where he basically tells um, acting Solicitor General Jeffrey Wall, who's representing the Trump administration and, you know, arguing against the ACA. Roberts is speaking to Wall and he says, you know, your theory of the case dramatically expands our understanding of standing, um, where you could have a plaintiff who maybe is injured or is claiming some injury to some small provision of a large statutory scheme and then, and is then you know using that injury to 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 stage a you know a huge assault on thousands of pages of of law here and you know Kagan picks up on that point later in the argument and she says not only does it uh, dr- dramatically expand standing it explodes standing under our uh, precedence and so i think that is where the the battle is going to lie is does the court say do you the does the court say the republican plaintiffs have standing to uh, challenge the individual mandate or does it say 
the Republican plaintiffs have standing to challenge the entire law. And this doesn't really have to do with whether on the merits um, it agrees with uh, the Republican plaintiffs. And I know it's getting a little bit complicated, but um, that question of this threshold issue of who can bring these types of challenges could, as I said, uh, you know, have some pretty big implications. So um, so I think a lot of court watchers are going to be eager to see what the court says. But, um, you know, for all of the collective anxiety among uh, Democrats, supporters of the ACA, uh, I think they can breathe a sigh of relief. So that wraps us up for November, oral arguments. There were obviously a few other cases, but the ACA was the big one we were all watching. Uh, And coming up on Friday, the justices have another conference and eyes are on a Mississippi abortion case that has been, uh, you know, part of some petitions that were rescheduled. Uh, It involves a 2018 state ban on abortions after 15 weeks um, that the lower court and the Fifth Circuit have blocked. Um, You know, it turns around the concept of whether a state can ban an abortion before the viability stage, which the Supreme Court has previously held in another case that states cannot. Um, So with the new makeup of the court it'll be an interesting case i think that a lot of folks are watching to see if it gets taken up so we will be back next week to catch everyone up on all of that high court action and more uh, thanks so much for chatting today natalie it's been fun thanks jimmy we'd like to thank our producers and editors Stephen Trader and daniel smith our executive producer amber mckinney and our contributing reporter this week jeff overly Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a written review. It really helps people to find us.